Starbright Project, a headcast network podcast about one of the greatest TV shows ever created, Quantum Leap. I am one of your hosts, Aaron Moss. I have been a Quantum Leap fan since uh, 1989. I discovered Quantum Leap through my mother. I was in my room at the time when my mom came in and told me there was a show that I needed to watch since it was about time travel. So I turned on NBC and settled in to watch my first episode. Man, I was hooked. Watched every episode. I rewatched it when it was re-aired on the USA Network and then later on other channels. Joining me is my wife and co-host, Michelle Moss. Hello. Unlike Mr. TV... Hey, I resemble that. I can't say that I had the same experience. I may have seen two, three episodes, and what I did see, I thoroughly did enjoy. When I met Aaron, it was one of those moments that surprised him when I told him that I actually knew of the show. Though... I didn't tell him how little I had actually seen. Here it is 14 years later, and now I'm watching each episode in order, one by one, as if it was a new primetime TV show, and I truly am excited. I do hope my inexperience will bring some nostalgia back to some of the old fans as I relive some of the mysteries and ask some questions you may have once asked back when you took your first leap with Sam and the rest of the Star Bright Project crew. Join us monthly as Michelle and I settle in and watch the entire run of Quantum Leap. I'm the Quantum Leap, I guess, expert on the show. <laughs> And I'm going to be the one asking a lot of questions, but hopefully helping reignite people's love for the show through a fresh pair of eyes. And we can experience it together on the Starbright Project podcast. And welcome to the Starbright Project. This is season two, episode two. I am one of your hosts, Aaron Brotherhead Moss, and as always, joining me is my beautiful wife, Michelle. I am Tarina. I'm sorry, Tarina's with us tonight. How are you doing, Tarina? I am good. How about you? I'll be right back. I need a few minutes alone. (laughs) Hi. (laughs) Also joining us is our our special guest. And I am Hayati (laughs) McVinievich. This stunt double of Hayden McQueenie. <laughs> yes, as usual, we have our friend from the down under, the land down under. And you barely poured your second drink of the night. Good yeah, job. Yeah, I just can't speak in general. Mr. Hayden McQueenie. He just smiled and gave me a bitch of Mike and sandwich. And he said, I come from a land under. <laughs> How's life going down under, buddy? Well, I'm not doing my own stunts anymore since we've been on lockdown. So, yeah, you, you might have met my stunt double just then. Ah, there you go. I wonder who that was. <laughs> That's Tarina's brother. <laughs> <laughs> Tarina and Hayati. You know, that happened to me again with the, the Coke bottles. I had another one where I saw H-A-Y, and this time it was share a drink with Hales. Yeah, you so. showed me that one. I yeah. had to have a giggle. <laughs> Oh, I thought it was great. I've come to the conclusion that Hayden just doesn't drink any Coke, so I'm going to have to move to Pepsi. There you go. (laughs) So this is, as I said, the second season of Quantum Leap, Episode 2. It was entitled Disco Inferno, directed by Gilbert Chilton, written by Paul Brown. The leap location and date was Burbank, California, April the 1st, 1976. April Fool's Day, everybody. 
Uh, this it rig- feels like a massive April Fool's joke, this one, because it, all it is is anachronism after anachronism. We'll talk about that a bit later, I'm yes, sure. Yes, we will. Uh, the original air date on this was September the 27th, 1989. Yep. Uh, the synopsis for this episode, Sam leaps into a disco dancer in the 70s. Before he knows it, a man walks in and guns him down. To his relief, and ours, Sam discovers he's a stuntman named Chad Stone, played by Kevin Light. Chad, his brother Chris, and their father are all stuntmen working in Hollywood. Ray, the dad, is annoyed that the director's taking shortcuts and doesn't seem to care about the stuntman's safety, so he and his boys quit. Al shows up and tells Sam that Ziggy says that Chris, the brother, is going to die due to a stunt going badly in the next couple of days. Also, during the leaps, Sam starts to have memories that he, that he has his own brother. Plus, the final memory that his brother Tom died, which Al confirms was in Vietnam. Fearing for his, his little brother Chris's life, Sam refuses to let Chris take his next stunt, which is falling from a building on the set of Earthquake. Tired of being denied the stunt he needs to get his stuntman card, Chris returns to the previous director to perform the stunt for that movie. When the fire stunt goes badly, luckily Sam is there to save the young man. The story ends with Sam predicting that President Ford would fall down the stairs on the plane he's exiting. If the president does indeed stumble, their dad, Ray, will give will get behind Chris's dream of becoming a musician. When more when Ford makes his stumble, Sam gives Chris a thumbs up and leaps. A couple of notes real quick. Again, I pulled this from uh, the Wikipedia. This is the first episode in which Sam remembers they had a brother who died in Vietnam, and the original air date of the Conehead sketch with Bill Murray was actually January the 21st, 1978, almost two years after the leap. And that's just a few of the, I'm assuming, uh, inconsistencies that uh, Hayden was referring to. (laughs) Yeah, well, I can give you a couple more if you want. Most of this episode revolves around the making of the film Earthquake, starring Lorne Green, who was famous from uh, Bonanza. Well, before Uh, you go too far with that, I do have a lot of that information in the brush of history, but feel free, go ahead and... Yeah, but Earthquake uh, actually came out in 1974, so uh, I believe that's two years before the leap date here. And also the infamous tumble that Gerald Ford takes from the plane was actually in Austria on June the 1st, 1975, so that also happened a year prior to the leap date. There's also problems with the timing of uh, the day or the night there too, because uh, a clock in the kitchen when they're watching it says it's five o'clock. So either they've stayed up all night and waited till 5 a.m. or it's 5 p.m. in the U.S. and it's extremely sunny for 2 a.m. in Austria. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, so, it sounds like you're real a couple picky. of poor examples. And yeah, I feel like I've got most of those notes down for my, my brush of history, so we'll talk more about that. Because, <laughs> yeah, I, it didn't bother me when I first watched it because I didn't catch the, the, you know, the, the off timing of all that because I'm terrible at dates, but I had to look it up and see because that's what I do. And, yeah, I went, wait a minute. That's not right. That's not right. Wait a minute. <laughs> I don't really think it's that difficult to fact check when you're writing these sort of things. I mean, Paul Brown could have made the um could have made this leap date 1974. Yeah. And then earthquake would make sense, but he wouldn't be able to use the Gerald Ford footage. He shouldn't have been using the the Saturday Night Live the Saturday Night Live footage either because that wasn't for another two years, but I guess they're limited by what they're actually allowed to use, but at the same time, I mean, a casual viewer wouldn't notice or care. 
Right. But, you know, us massive leap nuts, <laughs> whatever you want to call us. Uh, <laughs> Um, like I said, when you go to maybe shopping. not cone heads, but something else ending in head, perhaps. We are, we are deepy leapies. Deepy leapies. <laughs> yeah, uh, it really annoys us. Like I said before, uh, when you get thing- a show that's generally this good, sometimes you've got to look for little things to nitpick on and things that, you know, could have been done better. Oh, there is plenty to nitpick in this but- episode, too, though. <laughs> So this yes. is Michelle's first time watching it. Yeah, we watched it twice. Yes, I've seen it multiple times. Um, this episode, just briefly, I've got a love hate relationship with it. Uh, sometimes I enjoy so do it. I, well, mine's yeah. for different say, reasons. <laughs> sorry, I was going to say so do I. I love to hate it. Oh wow, see, that's I, some very very powerful words there, Hayden. See, mine's a little different. I, I enjoy the episode for what it is. Again, not the greatest episode of Quantum Leap, but it, it's not bad. My problems come with it as more of a personal... Uh, I haven't talked much about it on this show, but back in 1984, I lost my, my own brother to a house fire when I was 15. So, 14, I'm going sorry on 15. To hear. So, this episode here, sometimes I can watch it fine. Other times, again, you know, dealing with you know a younger brother possibly being killed and the fire and all that sometimes bothers me. So... That, that's my problem with it. It sounds like Hayden's got other problems, which we'll get to right now. So, before, well, before we get to Hayden's problems with it, Michelle, what are your yeah, thoughts? Yeah, Michelle might have better things to say. <laughs> what are your thoughts on this episode? It felt like just an 80s TV show to me. Um, one of those where it's just like you watch it for watching standpoint. But there were things that I actually thought were fun to watch about it. Uh I don't like disco. That's first of all. <laughs> so watching like when when it was showing the uh, overview and you saw like the ladies dancing with their fingers and shaking, especially the short haired blonde lady in that blue outfit. Just I wanted to throw up on her because she was just gross. <laughs> but uh, seeing Al. Not Al, Sam. Let's start with Sam. Seeing Sam when he first came in and he's in that white suit and you see his gold boots and you just tell he was disgusted. His platform boots. His his gold (laughs) platform boots. I just kind of had to laugh because if I were to be Sam and get thrown into that, I would feel the same way he was like, ugh, this is disgusting. And the dancing is ugh, disgusting. Um, <laughs> but, I, you know, and you could tell like he, he was, and then you see like the whole mirror trick and he's in this like hot, I, I don't I don't say hot like I think he's hot, but like other women think he's hot. Right. Male chauvinistic GQ, Probably is going to get AIDS in the 80s <laughs> kind of guy. He's going he's gonna to be the founder of AIDS. Yeah. Well, he's going to be like uh, uh, Jenny from Forrest Gump, you know, <laughs> that kind of guy, you know, where he goes well, out. I think, and, yeah, I was just going to say, I think he is the, the Chad, isn't he? He's the, yeah. the stereotypical chad yes chad brad you know fad those those kind of guys <laughs> and and no offense to anybody who who has contracted the the hiv or has aids you know in any regard i'm not i don't mean to insult but she does. no it's just <laughs> back then 
you know, it wasn't known and with multiple sexual partners, I'm sure, you know, that could have been something he could have contracted. He probably had other things that he didn't know he had with all the sexual partners that seemed like he had back then. Um, no, he can only catch AIDS once. <laughs> so, uh, and then like, I, I didn't understand and I didn't catch it again. I was trying to catch it. Why the heck the mood ring wouldn't come off of him? Like it was just stuck on his finger. Oh, I was waiting for Tracing some like laughs. deeper meaning yeah. and stuff. Well, that would be there at the end when she uh, commented that it was blue now. Yeah, I just thought that was a dumb gag. I was hoping for some like deeper schneeper meaning or something, but nothing ever happened, and I lost interest at the end. So it, whatever. But um, sometimes a mood ring is just a mood ring, and sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. Unless you're Bill Clinton. <laughs> but um, as far as Al goes, I thought he stole the show. I really did. Like, I loved when he was dancing. I probably could have watched that for another, like, 15 minutes. Just him <laughs> dancing alone. I loved it with every ounce of my well-being. Like, he... To me, the, the way he was moving and enjoying himself, it just seemed like he was just having a good old time and the way he was shaking his shoulders and, oh, it just made me giggle so bad. And in the way he was explaining like how it was the best time of his life and the swingers and the more I thought about it, I was like, oh my gosh, like, ew. Because, <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, he had some wife swapping going on there and he had like the swingers parties and I'm sure he's been to like Hefner's Grotto and you know what I'm saying? Like all of that <laughs> stuff. I could just see him just... And then he had his man purse and all of that stuff. But the one thing it's that... It's not made, a purse. It's a man bag. It's a purse. <laughs> he should have named it a purse. It's a man purse. He'll go with his Merkin. A Merkin? <laughs> um, the, Amer the American Merkin. <laughs> <laughs> but my favorite, favorite part of the whole entire show was when they're standing in the fire and Al's trying to light his cigar while everything is blowing up around him. <laughs> I died laughing so hard. I just thought that was the most Al thing to do and the funniest thing to do. And I'm just like, are you serious? Is he seriously lighting a cigar right now? I mean, I know it didn't matter because nothing was going to happen to him. But in in the whole scenario where everything is like happening so fast and it's a dire emergency and, you know, Sam's over there yelling at him for his voice and trying to save this guy's life. And there's Al just in the middle of hell's bells and he's, what is he doing? Oh, lighting a cigar. You know, I'm surprised. Well, actually, Michelle, smokers are like that. They cannot function in a stressful situation until they have their smoke. I so know. That, that is actually probably the most realistic thing about this episode, to be honest. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. <laughs> I know, but it was so funny to me. I just laughed. I just thought mm. it was so comical, you know, and but he he was doing it so smooth. Like it, it just, I don't know. But I did feel bad for... Uh, for uh, Sam when, you know, he started picking up on his brother and all of that. And I think 
Al played a really good part, especially at the end when he had tears, kind of like his eyes were weepy and glossy. And he had that photo and you could tell he had the photo. Like we didn't know he had the photo, but he had something and he was holding it back. And you could tell he was debating. What's well, one thing after we got done watching the episode the first time when, or not when they got done the episode, but when they announced that Sam finally remembered that he had a brother that died and Al confirmed it was in Vietnam. I asked Michelle if there's any of the tales from Al earlier, if anything jumped out at her. And she said no. And then when we rewatched it again tonight, she's like, oh, I see what you're talking about. <laughs> there was a few things, not a lot. I mean, there was, there was a couple. That's why I wasn't a sure. A few was- little, little things that after I remembered that Aaron asked me that question, then I started looking for them. And then I was like, okay, maybe the blinking of the eyes a little bit and then the nuances at the end and like a couple of wording, like a couple of phrases that... Well, like when when uh, Sam asked how he died. And he's like, who? <laughs> and then I'm like, oh, okay, I see what you're saying there, you know, but... um, the, To me, there wasn't a lot of telltale signs, but there were a few nods that if if you had already seen the show, you might be able to pick up on the nods if you were really paying attention. And that's what I was wondering, because I'd seen it say a bunch of times, so I wasn't sure how much of it was I knew, so I, I saw the signs and how I much of it was <laughs> and how much of it was actually signs that were there. So that's why I wanted to get your opinion on it when it was fresh. Um well actually the stuff with Tom um, that was thanks to Don Belisario. Um, apparently, in original drafts of the script, uh, it was supposed to be something to do with Katie, who's Sam's sister. Right. But Belisario stepped in and created Tom for more dramatic appeal. Okay. So uh, I wonder if um, that something might come of that a little bit later down the line. We'll have to wait and see. Let's let's go ahead and put a pin in it. (laughs) (laughs) So it seems like even back early season two, they might have been getting more ideas on how the series itself might play out. Yeah. Let's just say. Yeah. um, But I do have to say about this episode, though, when the best part of the episode is stock footage from Mm -hmm. another movie. There's something wrong. See, I disagree with that. I thought the stock footage was the worst part of the movie, the show. Well, let's let's stop and talk about that real quick. Um, again, I watched this on Blu-ray. I was going to watch it on the NBC app because my Blu-ray player lost the remote for, and that's the only way you control it. So I was going to watch it on the NBC app, but you can't find it on there. And upon talking with Mr. McQueenie, I discovered he had the same problem trying to find this. Do you know why that is, Hayden? Um, it's It seems to be because of all the um, stock footage from other sources that's used through this episode. Uh, Earthquake, I think, is the one which gets it flagged no matter what they try and do with it. But there is also the Saturday Night Live footage. There is also the Gerald Ford footage. Um, and there's also an awful lot of commercial music which is in this episode as well so the reason that you can't stream this episode anywhere is because of all the copyright issues that surround it so if you do want to watch this episode your only hope is the dvds or blu-rays 
and preferably not the original C, um, preferably not the original Region One set because all the music was replaced except for the brother singing his song. And is that really his voice? I have no idea, but I have my doubts because it looks very badly um, foleyed. I agree with so, you there. Yeah. And I have problems with that brother anyway because um, trying to get a feel on these characters, it seems from the level of maturity of the younger brother, he's probably only maybe eight between 18 and maybe 22 or 23 but he looks older than me, and I'm not young. And Sam, I think, is supposed to be maybe mid to late 20s, a bit more experienced, but still very young and lively and virile. Yeah, and I have real problems when I just cannot believe what I'm watching. I totally understand the dad just allowing them to go and spread their seed however they want. He doesn't really seem to care that much. That's just kind of... I don't know. I think it's kind of a standard sort of dad attitude. If the mum was still involved, I think she'd be reeling them in a little bit more. But (laughs) the dad (laughs) seems to be living some of his fantasies through his sons, I think. The dad is Um, just gross. Yeah, I have problems with the dad as well. What's um? What was the dad's name in this episode? See, I can't even remember. I, the, the I care that name? little Drunky about Mc it. Fartface. No, it was Ray. <laughs> it was the character name? Drunky McFartface. <laughs> well, definitely not a ray of sunshine. Or maybe a ray. Mc, maybe a ray of a Mc, lit fart or something. Drunky McPuncherhead. <laughs> yeah, and I can't get behind the dad for treating his son like that either. Yeah, I mean, like his, him. Yeah, if the son was a bit more feminine, perhaps, I could maybe understand, I wouldn't like it, but I could probably understand that sort of a side of his character. But the son is seems quite masculine to me. He has girlfriends too, and he's just trying to make his way in, in the world as um, a heteronormative man probably would be. So, I mean... A parent shouldn't ever have a problem with their child living their life in any way that they choose. But for a show set in the 1970s, aired in the 1980s, I could understand the dad having, um, you know, that sort of feeling towards his son not being manly enough if his son had more feminine traits or kind of is he gay, isn't he, that sort of stuff. But the son doesn't have any of those traits. He's quite masculine. He has girlfriends. He's just trying to make his way in a heteronormative world, which was the expectation back then. The father shouldn't have a problem with his son, no matter what well, let he me, decides let me, to do with his life. But even so... Quick. Let me interrupt you real quick with some real-world information. Yeah. Actually, I don't think he was supposed to be a likable character, but I, being gr- grown up who I am, I had my... my uh, Stepfather, his mother and father, especially his mother, they were very much like that towards me. Uh, I was always more of an introvert, more I'd like to read books, I would do my homework. I said, I'd always rather sit there and read while my brother, who was a couple years younger than me, would go out with my stepfather and his dad and do stuff out. In the, you know, they had lived in a big, big place, so they'd get in the back, back 40 and do stuff. And I'd rather sit in the house with my mom and read a book or whatever. And my uh, grandmother, well, call her my grandmother, 
my stepdad's mom, she was very much that. She would call me a sissy. And I mean, I wasn't, again, I was very much interested in girls, but because I didn't want to go out back and work in the backyard and I'd rather sit there and read, to her, I was a sissy. So I could actually see the dad, again, not being a great person, but uh, but I could see him being that way. Well, I'm not saying I can't see him being that way. It's more I can't see him being that way to the character Chris, who is far more masculine than someone you would expect in a TV show like this to for a father to treat their son like that. But so, I mean, like... the, the, Chris is quite masculine. He likes watching sports. He likes getting involved in um, the stunts. He likes driving the fast cars. He has girlfriends. Right. You, you know, that's not the sort of character that well, see, I don't you would expect a father to treat him like that. He likes doing the stunts. He's just doing it to impress his dad or to make his dad happy. And I think that's just, I think that one thing, I could, that doesn't bother me because I could actually see someone... Just on that one thing, you, know, you, you don't like do. You'd rather sing. What kind of sissy sings? I can well, very I don't much think he ever that. said he didn't want to do the stunts, though. I think he did want to do the stunts. Maybe more. Maybe he has the ulterior motive of wanting to compare to his brother. But it still seems like that is something that he has thought about pursuing and wanting to do. It's just he seems to like the music more than the stunts. Right. See, maybe it's just so, yeah. That's the way I read it. Is that. He uh, was just doing it to make his dad happy, and he, if he had his choice, he wouldn't be doing it, but he's doing it just to please his father, if you will. See, I didn't get that at all, and that's one reason I have a problem with the episode. The characters aren't, aren't believable, at least not to me. Yeah, there's nothing likable about the father. The most likable one is Chris, but even so, you know, He's, you've got a 40-year-old who look, well, looks 40 at least, playing oh. someone who's supposed to be 18 or well, real quick, something like that. And <laughs> I'm going to interrupt you again because that's what I do. Uh, Chris was played by a guy named Chris Cam, mm -hmm. K-A-M-M, and he was born in 1964, so he would have been 25 at this time. Well, he's lived a very hard life for 25. <laughs> <laughs> and to answer a question my wife had, uh, Kelly Williams, who played, uh, what was her name, Shannon? Chris's uh, mm -hmm. girlfriend, she was born yeah. in 1970, so she would have been 19. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. See, she was believable. Yeah, Michelle thought she was much younger than that. She thought she was like a teenager almost. I was like, is yeah. she like 16 or something? Well, the funny thing is, Michelle, yes. they in Quantum Leap, they will never cast a teenager in the age of a teenager. And Deborah Pratt's actually told me why that is. Uh, it's because it's too expensive. Mm -hmm. Because wow. children can only work right. for a very limited number of hours. It's too expensive to hire a teenager to play a teenager than it is to hire someone who is of age, of adult age, but could pass as a teenager. Although their choices of having someone who could pass as a teenager are often very questionable as well. It's like the uh, the 90210 woman who looked 40 in the first episode when she was supposed to be in high school. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> <Stop>. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's one problem that I really have with this episode. The characters are not believable. Um, and I don't like the conclusion of the episode much. I mean, they're staking the Chris's future on Al's and Sam's very 
poor memories and like he's going to be locked into something if uh well if the timing was right first of all right. <laughs> uh so i i don't like the conclusion there's not really much that i do like about this episode i mean wow hayden you sound like me for once <laughs> yeah well i mean Watching this episode, it reminded me why I usually skip it or why I don't care too much that it's not on the apps or the streaming apps. Uh, I'm just trying to think. Uh, The other thing that I noticed when I was watching it, though, is you wouldn't know this, Michelle, because it involves stuff that comes after this episode. But so many elements of this episode are done in other episodes and they're done better. So that's another thing that really annoys me. A good example is the son wanting to get into music and the dad not wanting him to. That's done in another episode quite a fair distance away, but in time. But, um, yeah, that's just an example of something that's done in other episodes as well, but done better. So, yeah, I think the only thing memorable about this episode really is where uh, Sam gets his memory of Tom back and uh, that and Al showing him the picture. I liked also though when they were on the balcony, and it's it's the the part where Sam's like, "Hey, nice costume," and they're talking, and there's just this moment that Al and Sam have, and Sam's just got this really neat smile on his face, and they're talking, and they're kind of joking around, and you can just see the friendship that they have between the two of them. And it's just like a really neat little moment. I don't know. I really, I kind of enjoyed that moment. You know, like he's talking about uh, Ziggy and Ziggy's saying, he's, they're laughing because it's in, in Japanese and they kind of chuckle about it a little bit. But there's just this moment that they have between each other. And there's this chuckle that Sam does and he just kind of shakes his head. And it's the way he tilts his head back and he's smiling and the way... Uh, Al is smiling. You could just see their friendship and the connection that they have. And it's just a really neat moment. And yeah, I get that. I really enjoyed that part. And it was really yeah. neat acting between the two actors. And it was a very private and enjoyable moment between the two characters that you don't get to see that often because it's always chaos, 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 hunt, rush, rush, hmm. rush, do something, do something. And For just that moment, it was just, you know, them razzing each other a little bit and enjoying each other's company and a moment of taking a breath and just having a moment to each with each other. And I I enjoyed that part. No, I I do agree with you there. That was nice. Um, But you reminded me of something else. I don't know if it's just because of how often I've watched the series all the way through, but it really starts to annoy me when Ziggy is useless in the episode. It bothers me too. It bothers me too being a newbie because I'm just like, well, is is it always broken? Yeah, you've got this supercomputer who can access any database and all the information in the world that you could want. And, you know, the majority of the episodes, she's absolutely useless and, you know, chucking fits or crashing or... Sending everyone on holiday and making the air go, conditioning in work Japanese or... and <laughs> yeah. So I mean, I understand it. It's a narrative technique to give the reason why Sam won't allow Chris to do 
anything during the episode. It helps to build the drama for why Chris is getting so frustrated. You know, why doesn't anyone believe that I'm ready for this? It's something to add to that. But it just really feels like this tired trope that I'm getting really sick of. <laughs> and I don't know if it's annoying you as well, Aaron, but I know it's <laughs> Michelle says it's annoying her. But it's really starting to get on my nerves now. And I mean, Actually, for no, crying out loud, in the episode before, like, they literally just got their funding for the year. Right. Do the updates. Get Ziggy working. Well, see, okay, my, no, my take on it doesn't bother me because Ziggy isn't just an off-the-shelf HP computer. Ziggy, he, at this point, he is an experimental machine AI that's built using uh, quantum technology and using bits of Sam and Al. And it's very, uh, I don't want to say experimental, but it's experimental. So I, I could understand it being, and again, like Al has said in the past, Ziggy has, or maybe he's, I remember he's something from the future, but he's got like an ego of Barbara Streisand, wasn't it? And yeah. again, Ziggy has his own personality. Plus, and maybe again, maybe it's because I've seen this. And I know it's coming up next episode. I'm wondering if that whole Japanese thing where he was talking about is a reference to next episode. Oh, I hadn't thought of that. When he said... Oh, oh. <laughs> yeah, I, I get what you're saying there. I didn't think um, about that the first I, time. Michelle, I, you, you haven't heard of this before, Michelle, but this is something that was coined by Albie, our fearless leader, <laughs> at least in the Quantum Leap podcast. Uh, he coined what's called the Burger Theory. <laughs> I and forgot about that. The reason that he called it that is because in Genesis, the one of the names of the doctors is Dr. Burger. And in the next episode, which has Creepy McCreepface, Sam orders a burger. And so right. Albie believes that if you look hard enough, there's some sort of a common link between each episode and the next one. Ooh. Yeah. So you've just discovered a link that I hadn't thought of. So thank you for that, Aaron. I'll have to. That's what I'm here for. <laughs> hopefully uh, Albie will hear, <laughs> hear this and he can add it to the list. <laughs> Yeah, I forgot yeah, about, um, about the burger theory until you mentioned it. Yeah, so, no, I, I actually really like it when uh, someone um, comes up with something for the burger theory because, um, look, I have looked, but I haven't looked very hard, let's just say. Right. And so that, that I say, part, part of what I said is just that Ziggy's a hybrid computer that's very experimental, very... I think experimental may be the wrong word, but very new, very, very cutting edge. A prototype. A prototype. There, it's in beta testing. And so there, there was going to be problems, but they can also use Ziggy for one, like you were saying, it would be a little easier on Sam, I guess, if Ziggy said, well, yeah, he's going to die in two days doing this fire stunt. Okay, well, he can do this, go ahead and do the earthquake scene then, and he'd be fine. But it keeps him guessing. Plus... Like I said, they can use that to throw in, and again, maybe it's not a subtle hint to the next step. Maybe it's not a burger theory for them, but that's where I'm, that's what I look at it as. So, and again, well, see, I, I do agree with you in part that Ziggy is a prototype, and there are always going to be problems, but there shouldn't be that 
many problems because the head program because Gushy programmed Ziggy. Right. He works at the project. He's always there. There's always technicians there. They have the funding to be able to get the materials that they need. There yep. is no reason why Ziggy should be should be. I as much don't as know. I've worked at an internet company and there should be no reason why the internet should go down. But I tell you what, that mother effort goes down all <laughs> the freaking time. And so, I well, mean... It's Tarina's fault. <laughs> and like I said, I've worked with computers. I've worked for a tech support company for 12 years. Yeah. I, I worked built my own computers. So I know that technology, especially when you deal with technology... Murphy's if, Law. Yes, if something can go wrong, it's going to go wrong. And when we move from beyond, like I say, an HP computer to a experimental prototype hybrid computer, futuristic computer, I, I can see it. And again, it's it's like saying my, my five-year-old, six-year-old should behave himself. Well, he should, but he doesn't. And there's no amount of software that's going to fix that. I think Ziggy at this point is gone beyond just, I mean, yes, Ziggy needs software updates because it is still partly computer, but I think Ziggy has gone a bit beyond a software patch that's going to fix everything. I think it's, like they said, Ziggy's kind of his own man at this point, his own personality. Or her own personality. No, this way it's a he. I'm just saying I keep hearing her and he and I'm going to start calling it an it because don't you judge, don't you judge No, it's got never, its own it pronouns. <laughs> don't you dare assume Ziggy's gender. Exactly. <laughs> That's not going to fly in 2021. Apparently my all my college emails from like my uh my uh, counselors and stuff all have what pronouns they want to be called by in their emails now. I just noticed that today or yesterday. I'm just like, okay, you do you, boo. <laughs> but yeah, so that, that's that's why I don't have a, the problem with it that you do, is that I can, again, maybe it's suspending disbelief a little bit more. And also, as I've said in previous episodes, if I really like something, you can I will fan link away. I will fan link like I was... Yeah. Well, look, it annoys me when it, it just annoys me when an episode will start and you think, oh, yeah, how's Ziggy going to be right. useless today? So well, my thing is, I was kind of complaining to Aaron. I'm like, all right, that guy's going to die because every episode somebody's going to die. And he's like, but that's what Sam does. And I'm like, yeah, but can't Sam do something else? Like, say the cat have a tree? You complained about that too. <laughs> but I'm like, it's kind of getting like redundant. Like, I feel like that's all Sam does is try to save somebody from dying. Mm. Like, well, I'm, you'll like the next episode then. Yes, I want something else. There will be other episodes mm. and something else. But like and I then said, I'm probably going to complain. Like, yes. Go back to dying, people! I don't want this no more. Like I said, and <laughs> for the most part, Sam's only going to leap in when it's like a dire circumstance. Yeah, but can't there be other dire Except circumstances for, besides somebody dying? And there will be. Again, there's getting their footing, and that's... I'm trying to go episode so far. And yeah, most of them have been someone dying. Yes, it's say. getting kind of old. Well, hang on, hang on. The baseball leap in Genesis, no one's dying. Star-crossed with creepy McCreep face, no one's dying. 
the um, church episode? The, the boxer episode, no right. one's dying. Uh, the cowboy episode, no one's dying. Yeah, actually. Pig uh, farmer. No one dying in that one. Yeah, yeah, that's the one. Just recently, um, though, it just felt like everybody's been dying lately. Yeah, well, I mean, there, has se- there has seemed to be a bit of a run because there was, there was the train, there was um, the the private eye, there was um, before the private eye. There, oh, Kamikaze Kid didn't have anyone die either. Um, that was the domestic violence right. one. But in in Color of Truth, they did have um, Miss Melanie die. So and then last episode, and, yeah, on the Honeywood Express. Yeah, on the train they had yes. um, the cop that Sam leapt into was going to die. So, yeah, look, y- you can expect that the most dire circumstance is when people s- when somebody is going to die. So you would expect that someone putting right what once went wrong would often, you know, try and prevent something like that. But I think, look, maybe it is just a bad run of episodes, but I think we do have a pretty decent balance on different oh, things that Sam could be leaping into. the other side of the balance beam because I'm just getting a little bit burnt out on people croaking. Yeah. But um, just a little bit of interesting trivia about this episode. Um, Brad Pitt was going to be in it. Hmm. Um, Deborah Pratt said that um, Brad Pitt came into audition. He was a young actor. He'd just done Thelma and Louise, but he didn't want to be there. He was absolutely miserable. So they accepted the fact that he would be a great actor one day, but his attitude would have rocked the special set that they had built. So, yeah, Brad Pitt uh, ultimately was passed over. <laughs> and, yeah, so, so that's just an interesting bit of trivia bad there. attitude is what you're, she was trying to say without yeah. saying it? Yeah, so he had a bad attitude apparently. And a couple other things, um, because this – episode largely focuses on movie stunts um the stunt director for quantum leap obviously had a, a massive role in the episode uh, he doubled for scott Bakula in a lot of scenes like when he was yanked back in the opening scenes uh, but he was also um a consultant that people would ask about um about some of the stunts uh jean-pierre dorliac hated the materials that he had to make the costumes with as well. Like the, the polyester was like a combination of paper and oil cloth, the thinnest of paper, no, wow. no fluidity, no movement possible. Yeah. And something else that I noticed, the leap in at the end of Honeymoon Express into this episode ends with the dancing. They don't show Sam getting, in inverted commas, shot and blown out the window. How do you think people might have reacted if they did keep that in? Do you think they would have been more likely to come back to watch the episode or less likely? I think they would have probably been more likely because if you see Sam getting shot and you don't know what's going on, I think it would make you come back. What do you think, hon? Um, it depends on how you feel about violence, I guess. <laughs> no, I'm serious. Like, if... You know, it depends on how you feel about that. But, I mean, if you're a big fan of the show and you see, like, Mr. Hottie Pants because you like him and you want to do him, and all of a sudden you see him falling through a window and you think he's going to die, of course you're going to come back and want to see Mr. Hottie Pants get better. 
you know, because that's what these, because apparently, like, they try to make them into, like, some kind of a sex symbol. We'll just segue from there a little bit. I didn't think he was Mr. Hottie Pants, and I didn't want to do him, and I wanted to see if he, I would have wanted to see if he survived. Well, I'm talking about the ladies. <laughs> I'm talking about the, the little old ladies that probably watched the show. But, like, otherwise, like, I think that, uh, if if you're a fan of the show and you're a fan of Sam and you and you're you're watching it, then yes, absolutely. Like, see, I actually think they made the right choice there by cutting it out because they're hoping that people will see the disco theme and think, oh, it's something different. Sam hasn't right. been in a big disco before. You know, they they might feel the seventies nostalgia and want to join in for that reason. Yeah, uh, where. Um, in the in the long run, that doesn't really have much part to play in the episode itself. So, I don't know. Yeah, I, don't. I mean, disco died out so quickly, and it was. I guess it depends on what the age group of people who are watching it. To be honest with you, if if they get the nostalgia feeling or not, because someone like Aaron, who was watching it, wouldn't have gotten the nostalgia feeling. A little bit. I was around the seventies. And you enjoy disco? Yeah. Some. I mean, I wasn't. Disco fevering. Disco fever. But I enjoyed some of the music, and that wasn't bad. Yeah. It didn't turn me off that it was a disco. I mean, I was like, oh, that was interesting. I'm not saying that it would have turned you off, but it's not why you would have, like... You would have stayed because it was Quantum Leap, not right. because they were discoing, is what I'm saying. Right. You would have yeah, just I'm kept ju- watching. Remember, this is still quite early in the series run, and they've only just gotten back from the, the uh, break. Right. So they might, I think they probably tried to do it to bring new viewers in mm, more so that, than that trying to keep point. their, their heavy um, fan base because they didn't have that heavy a fan base at the time. That's a good so, point. That's a good yeah. point, Hayden. I'll give you that one. Um, hey, Audie. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm just trying to think if there's anything else that I really want to talk about. Oh, this is not really to do with the episode, but this is more a, a difference in region thing. In Australia and in the Region 4 DVDs, which I have, uh, in quite a few episodes, the sound is pitched higher and goes a little bit faster, 4% lower and faster, apparently, according to my notes here. Hmm. Um, so when I was listening to the theme song, I'm like, this doesn't sound right. It's lower and it's it's lower and it's slower than it should be. And yeah, and uh, apparently that's the reason which I'm, I'm having a look at in my notes here. So, does, does it yeah. say why they did it that way? or Subliminal messaging. Uh, <laughs> I don't know, but apparently it's in a lot of... Um, a lot of episodes that we received here. So maybe they were trying to fit more ads in. I don't know. Hmm. Or maybe because yeah. they took some edits out. They edited some stuff out and they tried to make it slower so, like, it wouldn't take so long to do. You know, you know what I'm saying? Maybe, so yeah. Maybe. Do, it could be what gets cut out during syndication as well because mm-hmm. we know that a lot of TV shows get chopped up a little bit now to fit more ads in there, especially if they're a bit older. Right. Yeah, so that that could be a reason as well. I don't know, but it's it's just my ear happened to pick up on, wait, it's the right song, but it doesn't sound right. Yeah. <laughs> so, apparently that was the reason. And 
yeah, maybe that's another reason why I was getting more bored than usual too, because it took four percent longer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, just, just just to explain that, yeah, I couldn't find my DVDs; they're packed away somewhere. So I had Albie um, send me a copy of it <laughs> so that I could watch it. Um, it's not piracy because I have bought it. All right, it's just I couldn't find it. <laughs> Ooh, you're in trouble. <laughs> Yo, matey, come find me if you can. <laughs> um, 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 um. <laughs> Why are pirates pirates? Um, 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 I'm telling. Um, um, um. Cause they are. Oh, and on that note, oh. And like I said, I've liked this episode more than you guys did again. My, I liked it. But I think I liked it more. Oh, I'm sure you did because you like all the episodes. My Michelle is the happy medium. Yes. And this time Hayden's the grumpy grump. I know, really. <laughs> like, I'm not the one that actually is hating on the episode. How about that for once? <laughs> See, the, the one... But the funny... Well, I, I don't think it's really the fact that I hate it, even though I say I do. <laughs> I think it's more just the fact it's so forgettable and so easily skipped over that... You know, I just don't care about this episode at all. And th- there was nothing really to make me care about the episode when I watched it again. Hmm. So that, that to me makes me think, yeah, it's not worth praising. So I liked when they were talking about the eight tracks. And <laughs> I liked the car. I wanted to drive the car and play with the eight tracks. <laughs> well, as I was going to say, the one I, I don't complain, I guess, the thing that makes me wonder is at the very beginning when Sam leaps in and he's sitting there dancing and the guy comes in and, and shoots at him again in quotes, don't you think he would notice the feel the harness on his back and see the movie cameras? Or am I overthinking things? Uh, well, that actually might be better explained in the episode than you thought because of the mood ring. The, they... Uh, the chick says that the color that the mood ring was says that Sam's very disoriented. Right. So yeah. it might just be a product of the leap that he's so disoriented he has no idea what's going on. He wasn't really feeling right um, yeah. what he was attached to. And obviously then the stunt happens and he's more disoriented still. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I have a feeling it's probably due to there the disorientation of, of leaping. And that's one thing I was wondering because I was thinking about that because I didn't really think about that until – this last time I watched it for, for this show, and then it kind of jumped out at me. And then I got, well, maybe it's just because like I say he's disoriented. He's just left in, so maybe he's not quite focused enough to see the cameras mm. and feel the harness. But that's why I was just wondering. That's a bit, it was borderline for me. I just wanted to get your opinion and see what you thought. Yeah, well, I think it's just he was disoriented from the leap. Sounds good. Uh, Michelle, do you have any other thoughts on this episode of Quantum Leap? I thought the guy's girlfriend was really pretty. Kelly Williams? Yeah, I thought she was really pretty. I think out of all the girls that we've seen so far, I think she's the prettiest and she didn't have a horrible forehead. (laughs) I don't think that that guy's voice was really that guy's voice. (laughs) And... Yeah, his speaking voice sounded nothing like the singing voice, did it? Yeah, no, it drove me crazy. Oh, I was going to um, ask you, Hayden. There's a part in the show where it's at the beginning. Uh, I think it was. Oh, it's when he was looking, when at, the he's looking at the mirror and he was the, she, the, hickey. the hickey. Did it sound like like he actually that there was a part where 
the voice that came from the mirror was the actual actor of the voice of the mirror guy or was that actually still Sam because it almost sounded like it came from the actor of the guy's mirror face to be honest i didn't watch it that hard so i didn't <laughs> i didn't notice at all so <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, damn it, Michelle, you shouldn't have given me a reason to have to go back and watch this episode. <laughs> well, now you do, and you need to tell me, and you need to Facebook me. That's your homework, guys. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, actually, since you reminded me about the beginning of the episode, um, the, the voiceover that Sam does at the beginning when he was talking about what had happened previously and about how when he quantum leaps, it's like a senior prom. That uh, You won't know this, Michelle, but it sounds very much like, you know, um, some other stuff that might happen a bit later on in the uh, through yeah. the series run. And uh, it does make me think now, too. Oh, I said this before, but... It seems Don Belisario has had a lot of a lot to um, add or append to this episode because of how he's kind of planning uh, for the series to take shape. But one other thing that I didn't like, though, if he's got it well planned out, then he should have he should have acted more talk uh, with what Al was saying about the 70s being the time of his life because uh, I happen to know some really horrible things happened to Al in the 70s. So. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking the same thing. I'm like, wait a minute. Well, I was trying to do the math in my head and figure out when things happen. I'm like, yeah, I don't know if it was such a great time or not for Al. Yeah. <laughs> yeah he probably likes to look back more on the good times than yeah. the bad. So, I mean, a decade is a long time. Oh, but yeah. it, it does seem a bit odd sounding to me and to Aaron who have seen the series through when we know some horrible stuff that's happened to Al in the 70s. They're like, well, maybe the dates, maybe I'm off of my dates. Maybe it was more in the 60s. I I don't know. That's one thing I was wondering too about how good the 70s really were for him. And when Don Belisario seems to be as involved in the script of an episode that he didn't write as he was in this one, you would think that he would uh, try and you know, kind of get it to fit a little bit more. There's a lot of other stuff that fits really well. Damn it, how am I finding stuff that I actually appreciate in this episode now? But <laughs> yeah, there's a lot that fits in really well with the whole um, story of Quantum Leap. But yeah, that one just stuck out like certain things that belong to a dog. Of course, then again, I'm just rerunning episodes in my head and, and trying to think about things. But... And it could also go along my my fan theory, my fan wink, that things that Sam does throughout his leaps, the ripple effect, the butterfly effect, whatever you want to call it, maybe it's changed things. And maybe at this point, without going too far into it, maybe the 70s were better for Al. And maybe something that Sam changed in the future made it so they weren't so great in the future episodes. Mm. Well, that's possible. And it's also a possibility with, uh, uh, let's just say it's a quantum deep that I did in the past about something from the future that Michelle will have to wait for. It's possible that blah, uh, blah, blah, maybe blah, that blah. has something to do with it too. <laughs> yeah. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> <laughs> Which, uh, uh, let's just say that quantum deep was about Al. 
Okay. Yeah. Um, I'm just trying to think if there's anything I even really want to deeply think about in this episode. <laughs> and there really isn't. So, yeah, I've been really lazy because uh, uh, just the fact that it is so anachronistic, you know, I mean, I could pick on the timing and pick on how they should have done a better job with their fact-checking um, and I can pick on the fact that, you know, it does still feel like a really early episode of Quantum Leap that they are still trying to get their feet. Right. Um, but, yeah, there's not really anything that I really deeply want to want to say. I think they were relying a lot on nostalgia in this episode, and that's nostalgia that I just don't have. Like, with, with um, Earthquake, with the Saturday Night Live sketches, with Gerald Ford, with Disco, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> Give me some substance. Right. And, uh, yeah, it just really lacked substance and believability, this episode. Those are my final thoughts. (laughs) I enjoyed it, but I could see where you're coming from. You're wrong, but I can see where you're coming from. As Homer Simpson would say, you may not always be right, but I'm never wrong. (laughs) (laughs) That was great. Uh, Yeah, I don't think I have much more to say about it. I enjoyed this episode for what it was. Uh, is there anything you don't enjoy? Yes. See, no, no. see, you're lacking believability at the moment too, Aaron. Um, you mean anything as far as Quantum Leap or anything in general? Uh, well, as, well, let's just say as far as Quantum Leap for the moment. Um, I'm trying to think offhand. I mean, there's a couple episodes that I, I wasn't 100% happy with that we'll get to, I'm sure. But, but for the most part, yeah, I enjoyed most of the episodes. So, again, I'm a rather – when I like something, I, I like it and – I can be rather easy at times. <laughs> but yeah, Actually, well, speaking of Quantum Leap, I happened to be watching The Simpsons the other day, and uh, it was a treehouse of horror, and I got massive Quantum Leap vibes. And it's not from the one that is specifically a rip on Quantum Leap. Um, I think it was number 30, so that shows how long The Simpsons has been going for. Uh, but in this particular episode, Homer dies, but... He gets told when uh, he's in heaven that it wasn't his time, but in the meantime, his real body's been disposed of, and he can't go back to it. So he has to spend the episode taking over other people's bodies, and we get we see the quantum leap mirror shots and heaps. <laughs> and I'm just like, oh, Simpsons did quantum leap again. Yeah. <laughs> so if you haven't seen it, I think it was number thirty. Yes, I haven't watched the last decade or so, maybe more, actually probably longer than that, yeah. of Simpsons. I'll see so. if I can find it for you. I'll have to look and see. Well, it's on, I think it's on, what, Disney Plus or something I got. I think it is Disney Plus so, it's on, yeah. Yeah, I'm just looking yeah, So, So it'll be season 31 because okay. the Treehouse of Horror started in season two. Oh, okay. So look for Treehouse of Horror number 30, but it's in season 31. <laughs> okay. And I'm just looking through the episodes real quick. And Maybe Baby, I don't think was a great episode, if I remember right. Yeah, I didn't like that one much either. Uh, see but having that. said that, though, this is this is the exception to the rule, this episode, because season two, I think, is really, um, really is Quantum Leap's Renaissance era. Yes. Um, it, it really has some spectacular episodes. I mean, you've seen one already with Honeymoon Express and you've seen Jimmy already. Right. Uh, but yeah, that, there are some really top-notch episodes in season two. I don't know if Heart of a Champion is one of my favorites. 
Well, that's not season two either. No, no. Yeah, yeah, but um, yeah, it's only watchable in my opinion. It's not great. Yeah. So so I know that we've said in the past, even the worst episode of Quantum Leap, you can still find good things about it, and even in our discussion, you know, somehow you managed (laughs) to get me to find some good things. So. Yeah, <laughs> kudos to the both of you. <laughs> uh, well, let's see. So I guess that just proves our saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, no matter how bad it is, it's quantum leap. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess that's going to do it for the main part. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. Why don't you pull out your Lego phone and tell us what the next episode's about? Okay, let me take a look here real quick. <laughs> Sam, who has leapt into a guy very much like Popeye, uh, has re- has returned home after being stationed uh, during the Second World War, and um, he has brought home a Japanese bride uh, who the his parents don't approve of, and it's up to Sam to try to help them to accept her. And the reason I laugh and, so hard is when we watched the the uh, leap out, and he leapt into the, the sailor guy. Michelle's like, "Hey, it's Popeye," yeah, <laughs> and that's what Sam says too. <laughs> uh, yeah, right before he said it, that's what she said, and he said, "Like, that's I, I, I had to laugh at that." Hmm. Yeah, right, we'll take a quick break, and we'll be back. from Supermates Recordings. Chilling sounds from the house of Franklin Stein. The blood-curdling sounds of horror in one four-episode set. Featuring your favorite stars from classic spooky films. Lon Chaney Jr. and Bella Lugosi. Father was Frankenstein, but your mother was the lightning. Peter Cushing and Stephanie Beecham. The nightmare's over. And Christopher Lee. I have returned to destroy you. Bud Abbott and Lou Costello. I'm gonna haunt him. That's what I'm gonna do. Mm-hmm. Heather Langenkamp and Johnny Depp. Do you believe in the Pokemon? No. And Robert England. I'm your boyfriend now, Nancy. Here's more. The hit House of Frankenstein theme by Terry O'Malley. Now and you'll receive bonus comic stories featuring your favorite superheroes versus fiendish monsters. Offer ends October 31st and it's not available in any store. Here's how to order. To order the chilling sounds from the House of Franklin Stein, save all credit card and COD charges by visiting FireAndWaterPodcast.com or search for Fire and Water Podcast Network or Supermates. Podcatchers are standing by. Booster? Hey, bro. Gah! Bats! Booster! Together! Wow! Well, this is great. This is just awesome. You never said you and Booster were friends. <laughs> it never came up. A consummate professional like you? Friends with a dilettante like Booster? You're both my friends, okay? You're more of a work friend, and Booster is more of a fun friend. What's more fun than fighting crime? Ooh, he's got you there. 
Hi, this is FK Jason's son again. I just wanted to take another minute of your time to tell you about his podcast, Silver and Gold. He and his buddy Roy Charlemagne Clary celebrate the DC Comics characters Booster Gold and Captain Adam, issue by issue, and blah, 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 blah. Listen, the real reason you want to listen to the Silver and Gold is their Throwback Thursday episodes, because I'm the star of those shows. Dad and I review the Silver Age Captain Adam stories published by Charlton Comics in the 1960s. You can find the Silver and Gold podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. You can also follow Dad's Splitting Adam's blog at CaptainAdamBlog.com. We all know the real reason you'll be tuning in is to hear me criticize, uh, I mean, celebrate the Silver Age Captain Adam in our Throwback Thursday episodes. I can't believe Dad roped me into this. Searching for silver and gold If you're alone When you grow old You'll never find comfort in silver and gold Doom Patrol 1963 Doom Patrol debut My Greatest Adventure issue 80 1964 My Greatest Adventure renamed Doom Patrol Issue 85 1968 Doom Patrol Destroyed Issue 121 1976 The New Doom Patrol Showcase 94 1987 Doom Patrol Volume 2 Copperberg Lytle 1989 Morrison and Case Issue 19 1993 Pollack Issue 64 2001 Doom Patrol Volume 3 Arcudi Hewitt 2004 Doom Patrol Volume 4 Burn Shush 2009 Doom Patrol Volume 5 Giffen Clark 2012 2013 2014 2015 2016 Waiting for Doom, the Doom Patrol podcast, because we're waiting. Available on iTunes, Stitcher Radio and Podbean.com And welcome back from the break. Uh, next up, we're going to look at... This will be the day that I die. Did you write the book of... on Sam's playlist. And these are the top songs for April of 1976. But before we get started, a quick little note. I'm slightly changing the format of this section a little bit. Instead of playing the entire song, I'm just going to play a brief snippet of it. 
usually I'll play a bit of the song, then I'll keep playing it as we're talking. Um, talking with some fellow podcasters, several of them got some takedown notices when they use music in their episodes. So to prevent that, uh, hopefully I'm going to stop using the full songs. And, uh, well, I'm editing these right now. We'll stop using the full songs and use just a little clip of it just so you can hear it. So having said that. And if you like it, you can go find it and listen to it yourself. Yep. And after having said that, let's go and take a look at our first song on the list, which is entitled, this was March 5th through April 2nd. It just barely squeezes in, but again, I enjoyed this song, so I made sure I got it in here. This was December 1963, Oh What a Night by the Four Seasons. Let's take a quick listen to that. And that was December 1963, Oh, What a Night. I usually refer to it as Oh, What a Night, but uh, Michelle, yeah. are you familiar with the song? Yes, I am. And what are your thoughts on it? Um, I like the song, but I it's like Oh, What a Night, back, back late December, back in 1963. And then it's like Oh, what a lady, oh, what a night. So is he talking about, like, you're not supposed to kiss and tell. <laughs> so, like, I'm kind of wondering, like... Well, let's take a little look at the information on this real quick. Uh, like I said, this was released December of 1975. The B-side on the record was Slip Away. This was recorded in November of 1975. Uh, December 1963, Oh, What a Night is a song originally performed by the Four Seasons, written by original Four Seasons keyboard player Bob Gadeo, with his future wife, Judy Parker, produced by Gadeo, and included in the group's album, Who Loves You, in 1975. The song features drummer Jerry Pollocka on lead vocals with Frankie Valli, the group's usual lead vocalist, singing the bridge sections and backing vocals, and bass player Don Keown former lead singer of the Critters, singing the falsetto part. And I felt a rush like a rolling ball of thunder, spinning my head around, taking my body under. Uh, the origins of the song, according to the co-writer and longtime group member, Bob uh, Guido, Guido, whatever it is, the song's lyrics were originally set in 1933 with the title December 5th, 1933, and celebrated the repeal of Prohibition. But the lyrics were changed at the urging of Frankie Valley and Larris Parker, to reposition the song as a nostalgic remembrance of a young man's first affair with a woman, and more specifically, Gadeo's courtship with his wife, Judy Parker. Oh. So you were kind of in the I ballpark. Was, I was in the ballpark. Yes. Yes, you were. So he's talking about losing his virginity? I believe so. Oh, what a wow. night. He's, and he, he got laid in December. <laughs> yep, of 1963. Apparently. What if he has any kids? What if it was like, you know. <laughs> if it was a successful night? Yeah. Well, a non successful <laughs> night. You want to go with that. Touche. Touche. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> Man, I've always heard this song, and this is a song that comes on. I enjoy listening to it. Yeah, it's it's one of those that's not so torturous. <laughs> Better than a lot of the songs we've had on here recently. Yeah, so. uh, yeah. very much. So. <laughs> uh, the ne- let's go move on to the next song. Uh, the next song was from April third through April thirtieth, the rest of the month. It was called Disco Lady by Johnny Taylor. Let's go and listen to a few seconds of. Are you sure it's not Disco Duck? No, no, I did that earlier. This is Disco Lady. <laughs> Let's go and listen to a few snippets of that. Move it in, shove it in, And that was Disco Lady by Johnny Taylor. Uh, Disco Lady is a 1976 single for American singer Johnny Taylor that went on to become his biggest hit. It spent four weeks at number one at the Billboard Top 100 and six weeks on the Billboard R&B chart in the U.S. It was also the first single to be certified platinum by the RIAA. Ultimately sold over 200 and a half, I'm sorry, 2.5 million copies. Billboard ranked it as the number three song for 1976. This was Taylor's first hit for Columbia Records. Where he signed on as his long after his longtime label, Star Stax Records went bankrupt. It was produced as Taylor's longtime producer, Don Davis. Among the guests on the song were four members of the Parliament Funkadelic, bassist Bootsy Collins, keyboardist Bernie Worrell, guitarist Glenn Goines, drummer Tiki Fullwood, and background vocalist by Brandy, which is B-R-A-N-D-Y-E, which is composed of Cynthia Douglas, Donna Pryde Davis. And Pamela Vincent, not to be confused with the singer Brandy from from decades later. <laughs> uh, Disco Lady was the first hit 100. Try that again. Disco Lady was the first hot 100 number one hit with the word disco in its title, although there had been several disco songs that had reached number one. The song also reached number 25 on the UK singles chart. Aaron Taylor, his second Grammy Award nomination for Best Male R&B Vocal Performance. In 1988, there was a remake of the song Disco Lady 2000, along with a Radio Slam remix, which can be heard in the album Taylor to Please, released by Malakook Records. And the usage of media, a cover of this was sung by Paul Lynn and Pinky Tuscadero from Happy Days, which was seen in the 1976 special on ABC called the Paul Lynn Halloween Special, which retitled Disco Baby. And during the 1980s, Disco Lady was spoofed in a popular PSA for the American Cancer Society in a promotion called Dragon Lady. The Dragon Lady in the commercial was played by teenage Robin Gibbons, who turned off all of her peers by her excess of smoking. Hey, hey. And this also is in the first season of The 70s Show. But anyways, uh, Michelle, wake up over there. So, it's information people want to know. What do you think about this song? Um, I think I'd rather have listened to Disco Duck. <laughs> I actually kind of like Disco Lady. It's not my favorite. I don't like Disco But So the information, I guess, was a little bit irrelevant for me because Disco died and it needs to stay dead. I don't know if I'll go that far. Again, there's plenty died. of people. I'm, I'm sure there's plenty of people that are like Disco still. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, 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 like I say, it's not Dice my favorite. Died. What came next? I don't remember. 
Music in the 80s. Good music. Well, yeah, I can't agree. I can't disagree with that. Okay, then. So, kill this guy and let's move forward. Because <laughs> the 80s was more music in all genres. Country. <laughs> so, a little bit. Okay. I don't want to say that. But, blech. But, even them, they were a little bit better. But All right, see how Michelle's not into this whole disco lady song. Let's go ahead and move on to our next segment, A Brush With History. Well, if you have anything else you want to say about that. Die, disco, die. Hey, disco, die. But I Sounds like a bad 70s film. The only thing good about disco was watching Al dance to disco. Yeah. <laughs> that, I'm, still, I'm standing by that. That was freaking amazing. <laughs> that was the best part of the episode was watching Al do the hustle. Like... <laughs> In fact, like I can hear the music in my head, and I can see Al moving. And if my ringtone could actually like be like a, oh, a holographic ringtone, that's what they need to come up with. Where like when your phone rings, if you've got it laying down, right. Al pops up <laughs> on your like if your phone's laying down, and like all of a sudden Al pops up and he's dancing to like. The hustle, that would be my ringtone. That would be fantastic. And then like and then I could have Sam be singing the Valori song. Like when someone else calls, I would have like all of these like really cool ringtones Valori. of yes. That would be so cool. I'm gonna be a million multi-gazillionaire because I'm gonna come up with that someday now if someone's gonna hear me. On, no one listens to a podcast. <laughs> what am I saying? <laughs> but yeah, no, that would be freaking amazing. Like all of a sudden, they just pop up, <laughs> like they just start dancing. You never know. Weirder things have happened. Wouldn't that be super cool, though? Yes, they would. Yep. Yours would be like Joe Joe guys fighting. <laughs> Yo Joe. Yep. Gee, I. And anyways. Uh, let's go ahead and move on since we've got off the song and we're on to your, your ideas of what you're planning to build in the future. Uh, let's go to the past. So let's look at A Brush With History. Good segue, honey. Thank you. I'm proud of needs to be. Um, so in this episode, there was a couple of kind of, in quotes, brushes with history. Uh, Sam mentioned Apple Computer. Apple Computer Company was formed by Steve Jobs, Steve Wozniak. And Ronald Wayne in Cupertino, it's California, crazy. United States. Yes. Um, also, the New Zealand Fire Service was established as a result of the New Zealand Fire Services Act in 1975. British astronomer Patrick Moore broadcasts on BBC Radio 2 on the subject of the Jovian Plutonium gravitational effect as an April Fool's Day hoax. Moore's reputation is such that the BBC receives hundreds of calls from listeners who claim to observe the non-existent effect. Non-existent effect. Also in this episode, uh, we had Ford falling down the stairs. Uh, this actually happened in December of 1975. It didn't happen in April of 1976. And uh, a report says it was because of a bum knee from a football injury. So... So what? I know. I feel like why would they have to buy? I mean, why not just 
say it was that time frame. Why not write around that if you're going to use it? They could have. I mean, I don't know why they didn't. And again, they just, uh, I, I don't know if, I don't know. I'm trying to think that. I mean, you find this a lot of times on here where they'll they'll take stuff from history and they'll move it forward or back a little bit in time. I wonder if it's because they can't use it otherwise. I don't know. I don't know, but they're using actual footage, which I'll put a link to on our uh, our page. Also, in a brush of history, this was they talked about the movie Earthquake. That was the uh, movie that Sam was filming the stunt for. Earthquake was a 1974 American ensemble disaster drama filmed and directed and produced by Mark Robson. The plot concerns the struggle for survival after a catastrophic earthquake destroys most of the city of Los Angeles, California. And some people might say it's a good thing. It was directed by Mark Robson with a screenplay by George Fox and Mario Puzo. Mario Puzo worked on the 1970, what was it, 778 Superman film. Yeah. Superman the movie. Here with the strip for it. I still want that shirt that <laughs> uh, The film starred a large cast of well-known actors at the time, including Charleston Heston, Ava Gardner, George Kennedy, Lauren Green, uh, Guinevere Bujoto, Richard Roundtree, Marjorie Gorder, Barry Sullivan, Lord Nolan, Victoria Principal, East Beyond Dallas, and under an alias, Walter Matthau. Oh, it, wow. it is notable, notable for the use of the innovative sound effect called Sensorround, which created the sense of actually experiencing an earthquake in theaters. Uh, they were in a race with the Towering Inferno, which was also being filmed. The stunts, extensive use of highly trained stunt artists for the most dangerous scenes involving high falls, dodging falling debris, and flood sequences, set a Hollywood record for the most stunt artists involved in any film production up until that time. Major stunt sequences in the film required careful co- choreography between the stunt artists and the behind the scenes. Choreography. Choreography. Choreography, thank you. I know I wasn't saying that right. Uh, between the stunt artists and behind the scenes stunt technicians responsible for triggering full-scale effects such as falling debris. Timing was critical since some rigged effects involved dropping six-ton chunks of reinforced concrete in order to flatten cars with stunt performers only a few feet away. In other scenarios, some stunt artists were required to fall 60 feet onto large airbags from the rafters of Universal's largest stage, Stage 12, for which they were paid the sum of $500. While every precaution was taken to prevent injuries, several did occur during filming. One stunt person suffered a concussion during the flood sequence, the accident was used in the film, and several stunt artists were injured during the elevator crash scene since the set was designed to collapse upon them. Earthquake ranked third among the highest grossing films of the year. The Towering Inferno was the highest. Uh, for the film's television premiere on September 26, 1976 on NBC, additional footage was ex- added to expand the film's running time so it could be shown over two nights. So, I mean... Technically, I guess maybe the scene he was filming here could have been one of the expanded scenes. But this film was actually done before this this episode took place. Because hmm. I said the movie came out in 1974. So again, if they would have set the 
I don't know. I mean, and see, that's part of they couldn't have done the earthquake thing. Plus had Ford falling down the stairs because that was like a year apart. So they had, if they wanted both those scenes in, you know, the earthquake part and then Ford falling down the stairs for that final jab at or whatever, uh, it, they would have had to move something around. So they moved everything around. I, I don't know. <laughs> earthquake. Do you, did you ever watch that movie, honey? No. No? I think I did. Back in the, uh, Probably when it was on NBC in 76. I remember I was six years old at the time, so I can't remember offhand. I think I've seen it. It sounds familiar. Besides what I've seen here. <laughs> and I'll put another clip of that on the, uh, the the scene of the actual earthquake scene that we saw in this episode. I'll post the actual scene on the page also. But those were our brushes with history for this episode. Uh, do you have any other comments or anything else you want to add to that? Nope, not at all. Well, then I guess until next time we're done. With the brush of history. The brush of history. In this episode of the Starbright Project. Join us next episode when I'm sure Hayden will be back and me and Michelle will be here to talk Quantum Leap. See you in the future. Thank you for listening to the Starbright Project. Join us monthly as we continue leaping with Sam and Al. If you like the show, I recommend buying Quantum Leap on Blu-ray. You can also watch it on the NBC website or app. The only thing on this show that Michelle and I own are our thoughts and opinions. NBC Universal own the rights to Quantum Leap, and any songs that we use are owned by their respective owners. Any clips we use, we're using good faith for the show. I know this doesn't excuse us legally, but we just want NBC to sue us. We're as big fans of the show and want to share that love with the world. For more podcasting goodness, check out the other shows on the Headcast Network. Head Speaks is released on the first Tuesday of the month, where I talk about comics, TV shows, movies, books, and whatever I want, but it's usually geek-related. G.I. Joe, Royal Market Headcast, is normally out the second Tuesday of the month, where a rotating batch of guest hosts and I discuss the G.I. Joe comics and cartoons from the 80s. The third Thursday brings us Task Force X, where I talk about John Ostinger's Suicide Squad and Paul Kupperberg's Checkmate comics, both from the late 80s, early 90s. Finally, the fourth Tuesdays of the month, we have the Starman Manhunter Adventure Hour, where I examine the Will Payton Starman comic and the Mark Shaw Manhunter comics. Again, both from the late 80s. Then on Thursdays, I release my second batch of shows, where Michelle shows up on most of them. The first Thursday of the month, I'll be releasing the Starbright Project, a Quantum Leap podcast, where Michelle and I look at the greatest time travel show in the late 80s and early 90s. Then the second Thursday of the month, look for Retrospect of the 80s, you guessed it, Michelle and myself take a time travel trip back to the greatest decade that was, in my opinion. The third Thursday will possibly, maybe, bring another show, Voyager's Cast, where Michelle, I, and some guests look at the best time travel show from the early 80s. And finally, on the fourth Thursday of the month, I have Bravo Team, where myself and possibly some guest hosts talk about anything G.I. Joe related, not covering the main G.I. Joe show. Also, if you like what I'm doing, please check out my Patreon page at patreon.com slash headcastnetwork. If you're enjoying my shows, throw a few bucks in the bin. It'd be most appreciated. But that'll do it for this episode. Join us next time to see where Sam ends up. Oh, boy. Oh, boy.